Welcome to the Pulsecast. Thank you. This is the number one youth ministry podcast for the Uniting Church in Australia. <laughs> this episode is recorded on the land of the Baramatical people of the Darug Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded, and we pay respect to the elders past and present, as well as seeking to grow deeper relationships with all emerging elders. My name is Malk, I'm part of the Pulse team, and this is our very first live Pulsecast. Thank you so much uh, to the School of Discipleship, which is what this um, podcast episode is coming to us live from, live-ish, from. Um, I'm, I'm stoked that we can be a part of this with the SOD team, as much as the very excellent guests that we have on this episode. Uh, on my left, I'll start here, is the Reverend John Owen. Yay. <laughs> Polite clapping is helpful. <laughs> Reverend Janet Staines. Yeah. And this is where I proved that I'm a chicken, Dr. Sati Club. <laughs> Thank you, friends, for being willing to participate in this question response conversation time. Um, we've been really uh, fortunate this weekend at SOD to get some great input from particularly you, Sati, and John, and also Janet, you leading us in liturgy and prayer. Um, I, I, this is only my second school of discipleship, and I has it, I'll come back for another. It's, it's been joyous, uh, and I always enjoy this community. I find it to be um, encouraging and challenging and the right amount of bastard, which is, I think, what we need in, in this modern post-Christendom society. Friends, some questions. I thought a great opportunity for us to kick off our very first live Q&R uh, as a part of the School of Discipleship is to ask our three learned guests a really simple question. I want to hear from you the tweeted version of who you are. So ostensibly, the 260 character version of who John Owen is, who Janet Staines is, and who Sarah Carr is. And I'll start with John. <laughs> tweeted version is I'm a uh, uh, a bone wrapped up in Indian skin. Come on. There you go. That's better. Amazing. <laughs> Great. Well, that's it. Good. Uh, um, I uh, minister of the Word. I've been in the Uniting Church for 16 years in a regional congregation in Brisbane, and I'm the chair of the Presbytery now. Oh, no. um, and so that's been fun. And um, I love School of Discipleship. Um, I love the community, I love being part of something that has reminded me of who I am. Right. To be able to take that. Thanks, Jim. I'm first a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so what binds us together is that we're all co-disciples. I've lived between India, the United States of America, and Australia. I'm an ordained presbyter of the Church of South India, which was one of the historic ecumenical churches that brought together a lot of the denominations that are part of the United Church, but also the Anglicans in 1947 for the first time. I've lived and worked with the poorest of poor, the Dalits in India, whom I served with humility because I learned more from them than I offered to them in India. And then I've lived in the US for about 30 years. I've made the transition to come to Australia. I yearn for a blessing from the indigenous people whose land I come to without their permission but with a stamp that says I can live here by the Immigration Department. <laughs> it's a joy to be here, and I look forward to our conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Sati. Thank you, all three. Um, to, to extend that question, Janet, you already raised with your Minister of the Word, the important Presbytery Bishop person. Um, <laughs> sorry, Presbytery Minister. Got that wrong. <laughs> For you, life in congregation land, I mean, what, what brings you joy in that space? Because that can be challenging. 
Um, yeah, I've been in congregational ministry for about 25 years now. And so learnt uh, a lot of things on the way, a lot of mistakes. The joy for me is discipling people, being part of a discipling community. So the place I'm in now is a regional community. So um, my role is um, about managing staff and other ministry agents and colleagues. But um, So I have the opportunity to try and develop systems and structures now to help us be a better disciple community. Right. So that would be the thing that brings me to Thank you. That's super helpful. Sadi, you mentioned that you've, you're here in Australia, obviously, but you've come to work. What does that look like for you, ministry-wise? So, um, by vocation, I'm a theological educator. So I've, I've been a professor in, in a large Methodist theological seminary in Washington, D.C. It's called Wesley Theological Seminary. Uh, I've been there for 20 years. Um, and I just accepted a position from yesterday. I will be a lecturer at United Theological College uh, here. In what word? So this is a transition, including into the community of Christians that come under the banner of the United Church of Australia. Um, I will be accepted for placement and I will continue to strive with other disciples to live out faithfully, joyfully and fruitfully what we are all called to do for the sake of the reign of God. Thank you. Sadi, I'm a, a student at, at UTC, like a student. Um, but I look forward to at some point you marking my assignments and panicking in the time that that takes place. He has a big brain. Like the one thing that I'm going to take away from, from Sod this weekend around Saki is that he thinks good. I don't know, I'm ready for that. John, from a ministry perspective, in the year of our Lord 2023, what are you doing? Um, no idea. <laughs> Preach. No, I'm... So at Wayside, so we've uh, got two sites that we're operating out of at King's Cross and also at Bondi Beach and uh, starting to look at a couple of months we're doing, we're, we're, for the next few months we're doing a little exploration into Glebe as well and so uh, keep your eyes and ears peeled for that but I get the joy of leading um, a wonderful community where we're doing a lot of great work amongst people who are generally sleeping rough on our streets as well as um, working now in a space where we um, recently a, a women's refuge in our neighbourhood closed down and moved. So we've uh, opened up a little space where there's a lot of women who are leaving or contemplating leaving family and domestic violence uh, are interacting in there and as well as um, a whole range of other things that go on. Um, Wayside's always had this quite unique space in the, the work that we do often get sought out for broader comment of, about who we are as a society, which in this kind of year and day and age, the fact that they're asking a clergy member their views on society is uh, pretty special and unique and precious. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for that. Um, I can confirm that if you drive around King's Cross late at night, you might see John. <laughs> if you drive around King's Cross even later at night, you might run into John. Be careful. <laughs> This is a Q&R episode. The people that are assembled are welcome to submit questions. And I do have a number of um, uh, some anonymous and some named questions around uh, the, the conversation, the, the stuff that we've been discussing at School of Discipleship this weekend. For those that are playing at home, you missed your chance. Come to Sod next year. <laughs> For those that are here, a reminder that you're welcome to participate by sending in those questions and I can keep an eye on them here, as well as there is an opportunity for you to stand up and ask if you would like to in the, the course of our... Um, I keep saying conversation because I like to think that it is. It's meant to be relaxed, right? If we just chill. It's just friends, just talking. <laughs> Big brain. Um, so I'll open with this, which is a, a simple question for me. Thanks to the Apostle Paul, who I know the organising committee got engaged in the process to come up with our theme, Neither Slave Nor Free. <laughs> uh, to the panel, to each of you, please, what does freedom mean to you? And I'll start with you. Me? Can we start? Let's start with Sadi. Oh, we'll start with Sadi. Cool. 
So uh, for me, uh, freedom is the result of first receiving an embrace by Jesus Christ. I cannot think about freedom apart from the embrace that I've received in Jesus Christ. It's like a form of parenting where if you hold on too long for your child in the embrace, you have them to yourself but not for the world and for themselves. You have to let go in order to find who you are and who you would be for the world. So I find that freedom for me is being trusted by God after being embraced by Jesus to be about the work for the life of the world through which I find my own life. That's freedom for me. It comes in Christ Christ embrace, but it is meant for the sake of the life of the whole world. And that's why I feel so free, because I've been so embraced. John? One of the freest people I know is a guy named Kyle Slab, Kyle Slab and he is a Vangelina Gilda. He's a, a, a beautiful guy and he's an elder in his community and he, as a result of being an elder in his Aboriginal community, he's, he's learned two or three or four extra languages that have different levels of law within them and he told me once, he said the whole point of doing all that learning, all that language learning and all that law is to be useful to your mom. And I find that is the greatest example of someone who I know is the most free person I've ever met because I think he's free from the shackles of our society that says the best thing you can do is to be an individual uh, in that space and you know it's about you and your personal fulfillment. His freedom is has enabled him to be free of that in order to be able to be free free from that so he can be free for the work of and the discipline of being um, a part of his community, of doing the work to be a generative member of his family and his community that, that blesses the world. So that for me is, is the, the definition of, through a person of, of what freedom is, is to be, um, to be a generative member and doing the work that that requires. Well, it's such a loaded word, freedom, isn't it? And the word, as I understand it, in scripture is different than our postmodern understandings of it. Um, so from a, a gospel perspective, I think I would say freedom for me is to choose whom I would serve. Um, on a more of a personal therapeutic approach, I'd probably say um, freedom would be not to be restricted by my own insecurities or brokenness, to be free to be in healthy, life-giving relationship with others in the community. And you see that the, it's neither slave nor free. We're trying to find a middle ground between, between the two. And freedom isn't the ultimate goal as we understand it through that time. Mm-hmm. Thank you all. I appreciate that. There's some great questions that have come in. Again, even as we've been talking, so I'm, I'm keen to engage with this. Uh, this question comes to us from someone within the, the SOD community called Curious Seeker. And they ask, or, or say rather, sometimes I don't have the capacity to do anything, serve others, fight for justice, even go to church. Their question is, what does discipleship look like in those times? And I'm happy for any of you to jump in as you are studying. So there are times like this for each one of us 
Modernity makes us believe that we should all be active, energized, and working towards something and achieving something. There are times in which we're called just to be, to breathe, to feel that we're loved, to feel there is a creator that still cares. And wait then again for small steps, baby steps, of moving out of yourself to meet those who will also heal, love, care for you. It's very difficult to advise someone who doesn't feel that way. I'm energetic in spite of my age. Um, I, I'm all about doing stuff. Um, but I think there are times in which probably I will be asked also just to be. That seems, thank you, Sami. Sorry, for being your response. It seems almost antithetical to the nature of the community we live in. If, if, I, if I reflect back to you that society absolutely tells us you've got to be in something, you've got to be engaged or connected or find a way to be a part of whatever it is, and that even church congregational life can have rightly or wrongly similar demands. Finding a place to just be is a rarity in modern life. Are, are there practices that, that you lean into, or to the panel as well, that you lean into that, that help you find those moments to centre yourself and to, to just be? I shouldn't be overactive giving advice about how to be, so I'm going to over to either of you. Uh, because, as you know, I'm trained to be a party head. <laughs> just be. That is what. Amen. 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 Ronald Rollheiser uh, has a beautiful poem that is about helping us do the work of learning to be still. So he talks about the idea that um, being still is so anti what we are familiar with that we have to do some work to be able to do that. And he writes his beautiful prayer that lists off all the ways, all the distractions for the rest of us. And I find that really good discipline to pray quite often. It's quite a long prayer. But I use that as a discipline to help me uh, recognise what it is that's distracting me, naming it, confessing it, moving on to the next thing, and then finding that place of stillness. I have uh, two things that I do regularly. One is make sure I see something that kind of takes my breath away in the natural world. And so luckily when I head down to um, the beach, to the chapel there, you've got to head down the hill and you just catch this mist that just takes your breath away. And that's an important experience of feeling small and to help cultivate awe. <laughs> And, uh, and reposition, because particularly in roles we can often feel like um, the world wouldn't operate without us. And so it's important to have that, those little tangible, visceral reminders there. Also being uh, amongst people that don't care who you are and uh, is a, a practice and a discipline as well, which is a gift to you. And sorry, I said two, but there's three. The other one is I will, um, I've got a couple of playlists on my phone that are really loud music. And when I'm driving home, particularly after a really tough moments, I pump it up really, really loud and I sing it really, really loud on my own. And uh, just kind of takes you to a place outside of yourself. And I'm not gifted in singing, right? So it is, it is, it's all about volume. Yep. <laughs> Uh, than tone. So, uh, is there a track that you would share with us that's on that one of those playlists that you just does it every time? Does it every time? Um, 
Shake It Off by Taylor Swift. On. So, I'm on. Certainly. Or Bomb Track by Rage Against the Machine. Both completely. <laughs> so, yes, I rap out loud in the car. It's the only place I would ever do so. Some of those wonderful scissors saying the burn crosses, John. Now, Reflector Air, thank you for sharing that as well. It's said that everyone is running from something or running towards something, and the wisdom of God is found in knowing which direction you go. John, reflecting on something that you shared even today with us in that similar light, how does that, I guess, expand on your understanding of discipleship? Oh, wow. These are deep questions that you need quick answers for, yeah, yeah. aren't they? Quite so, yeah, fantastic to all you podcast lands. Um, it's, so, you know, I, this morning I shared, and if you guys on the podcast, you probably you would have missed this, uh, talked about, um, I wish I had started ministry from a very different base from the one that I did. Do I regret that I did that? No. Because that is the arena that God chose to place me in to be able to begin to go on this journey, this life of, of unlearning. So that, that's how it kind of reframes. But I think it's most important to do the work. The one time I, actually I confess, I've been to two Hillsong conferences separately and, you know, just for the entertainment value. And actually, you know, one of the ways to, you know, I said I pump up the tracks and the music is sometimes just sitting in that like a room of 30 to 40,000 people and them all pumping out at the top of their lungs. There is something quite powerful about uh, connecting with something outside with God, thinking, wow, that's amazing. Uh, But one of the people said, uh, in the Bible, only 80% of leaders, uh, sorry, only 20% of leaders finish well, right? Which... Something struck me. One, I haven't ever checked if that's right. I never <laughs> check anyone else's stats 100% of the time. Right. Um, because I throw them out there. But it is left me, it leaves us all with the, there should be the fear and the, and the warning bell that says, you have to work hard to finish well. Left to your own devices, you will not. And so how do we do, uh, as we were discussing in, in, my, in the earlier address about the practice of being able to say sorry and acknowledge your faults. We all have work to do because we've all gotten to where we are in life because of um, calls, so the bull, yeah. the bull factors, but also the pushes, the pain. And my best workers, myself included, when I'm at my best, is I'm generative in that I know why I am doing this kind of ministry because of the experiences I've had. All my best workers have lived experience. Um, my most dangerous workers don't do the work, so they end up replicating the cycles that they're seeking to end. My best workers know that they're doing it from a place of pain and vulnerability and are committed to doing the work so that they can be generative and in times of crisis not replicate those cycles, not only within themselves, but the people amongst whom they're in ministry. So that is a call of discipleship to pick up your cross every day. And if you want to do it well, it's inescapable. It's unavoidable and it's actually a joy. Look, I'm sure it is. It sounds pretty heavy, frankly. Um, And I think that it can be easy for us to put our, look, you know, middle-class Australian sanitised version of Christianity into a box and go, this is discipleship, put it on the shelf and pull it down when we need to. So given you know, this, this reflection that you offered so generously around and you know, in, in seeing and hearing and understanding where we come from when we work in sometimes those traumas with other people, even within ourselves. Why then would you embark on a journey of discipleship? Those places within ourselves and within other people's lives, if we're invited into that, I feel like that's almost our equivalent of the whole holes. And if we ever are invited into those places or if we ever have the courage, no one will ever force you to go to those places. That is something, and I don't even think God forces you to go to those places. It's a place where 
A bit like uh, Peter at the end, you know, you, you'll just be led around where you don't want to be led sometimes. Is, if, if we do that, that, that. You know, there, there are people who escape the storms and then there are people who will then say, thank God, and, and give you a lecture of five points out of avoid the storm. But then there are those who, after they escape the storm that they've been through, head back in to help others out. And so to be in community with those people is just humbling and flooring and you know it says you know john 10 10 i've come that you might have life and have it to its fullest that is and if all real living is meeting when you go to those places there just there's no better place um, uh, to be i um, i summed I, I never wonder why i, I do the work that i'm sorry i'm putting too many of my eye I, 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 me, me, into this. But it's okay. It's your experience. When you're, when you're in, um, in that kind of space, it is just indescribable, those uh, kinds of... Um, and, and you walk out, you know it's a true encounter when you walk out thanking God yeah. for it. Not like, oh, gee, didn't I use a clever counselling technique that moment? <laughs> and it was effective. No, it's, well done, man. Like, yeah. You just think, wow, God, you're, you're just amazing. Yeah. That's it. Thank you. Starting to continue, and in fact, picking up on something Ramon raised with us yesterday. Um, our friend Anonymous uh, within School of has asked, are you sure the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice? Everything seems to be on an inevitable trajectory towards shit. <laughs> Not my words. <laughs> so do you believe God is remaking I will not repeat the S word, <laughs> but I think this is a, a rational and logical question for all of us. And that's why, as I said yesterday, in all the complexities of our life as human beings, in relationship, with all of creation. We can notice two movements. One, I talked about the stream of the reign of God, which is basically the dream of God. From the beginning, in the garden with waters, this stream actually was meant to make all of creation flourish. But as we look to our side, we also see roaring seas and rivers that in fact is an anti-kingdom. I think the only thing that we are called to as disciples in hope to place our lives or even dive into the streams to be rebaptized into new beings who will be joined together so that the dream of God can be realized. That is the arc of justice with mercy, righteousness with forgiveness and reconciliation. And in the end, that is the dream of God that we wish to be part of, in which all things will be reconciled, so that the fullness of life is not just my fullness or abundance, but it's the abundance that the dream of God has always wanted for all of creation, which is the kingdom or the kingdom of God. So when I look around and I see people dying before they're five, being shot because constitutions want us to believe that we are both a Christian nation but also a gun-totting nation. When I look around and see how by neglect and not listening to the voice 
we do not allow indigenous communities to exist and grow into flourishing. I too share the cynicism. But I have placed my life on the truth that this stream will move into a gushing river so that basically the rivers of life can flow everywhere. There's a realist sati and a dreamer sati. The realist cannot see justice. I've seen it for myself. I'm secure. But as Christians, we cannot think of ourselves. We have to think of the least of these and then that is the litmus test whether something is true. And what I say is a hope rather than a reality. But I would still hope. Thank you. Thank you very much. Please. Oh, I was going to ask Janet some question, but you come on, Janet. I forgot what the question is. Yeah. Oh, look, I think if I was to, I'll take an extension. If I may, and, and build on what Sadie John said, we can continue this because another great question is coming in from the floor again from Anonymous. They're working overtime, let me tell you. And, and bear with us because there's a good run up to this. In the last few days, the US Supreme Court has, in effect, overturned affirmative action in universities, saying race cannot be taken into consideration for admittance. This has been celebrated as a win for Asian and other cultural groups, but mourned as a regression for black Americans. It seems there is an increasing competitiveness between different othered groups who argue, I'm the most disenfranchised, I deserve more. Do you, and I'll open it, sort of, I'll broadly open it, but I'll say this, do you see an increasing class system in race, gender, sexuality, faith, and other diverse groupings? And what might the Gospels say about this? So you can pick any part of that. When Sati was speaking with us on the first session, I think, he spoke of two misunderstandings of the kingdom of God. She talked about the first one is that we think the kingdom is above and that the kingdom has no claim on what happens here and we continue to work within the systems, pretending that our eyes are popping up. The other misunderstanding is that we, um, that the I, me, myself, become the centre of our hopes and our dreams and um, our conversations, our thinking becomes around our own sense of identities and place in the world and yet it's a deception, it's not the true representation of the kingdom, is that right? It's, it's better than I said. It. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking about it all weekend. Uh, and I have been trying to think about how, uh, how I might be deceived in either of those spaces. And I think maybe that question sits somewhere in the midst of that, that within the midst of identity politics and race that we become so once again become so obsessed with our own sense of self and who we are in the world that we're deceived or we're distracted by the, you know, that second misunderstanding of identity and being caught up in ourselves. And I wonder if that just becomes another distraction for us as Christians not to recognise the claims that are in our life of the kingdom and how we might engage with that. We, we as the United Church sit in a unique place, even within, I'll call it Australia, whatever that means. Since union, we have welcomed and affirmed the ministry of all people. God gives everybody for us to share and engage in that. And part of that has been acknowledging that we want to welcome women particularly into ministry and, and acknowledge the call of God on their lives even in our little island society, there are other expressions of faith that do not hold the same understanding of call and welcome, if I can paraphrase it that way. 
for someone who's been in ministry for so long, as an as a intelligent woman, as someone who is able to engage in the full depth and breadth of God's work, I mean, you, you're in a unique place because you get to be able to stand up. I, not only just I lead a congregation, I'm a presbytery minister. I lead other lay and ordained people in some of the conciliar work of the church. Women are still struggling in 2023 to have the call of God in their life recognised in our country. How do you, what's your reflection on that? How do you see in that, knowing some of that joy that you have in years of ministry, and, and I'm sure some struggle through that as well, and seeing others that don't have that opportunity? Um, I think while I did my master's thesis on this, okay, good, settle in, everyone. <laughs> Around the um, organisational dynamics and processes that still um, prevent women from being in positions of senior leadership that is mainly looked at. Um, but I think at the core of it is that we yet do not fully believe that women or particular races, that without them we are not all that God has called us to be. So we make it about um, who we want to be and power dynamics and identity. But at the core of it, we still do not really believe that without those people, we are not going to be who God has called us to be. Sure. That's at the centre of it. And thank you for that. And if I might just throw in a little bit as well. I find great joy that we as a denomination have struggled with, I guess, the extension of just within ordination, if we think of it as a better thing. That we've gone through the effort of going, we also acknowledge that our queer siblings are also called. Not, not just to be within the body of Christ, but called to lead us in ministry, to be ordained, to be in places where they are to call us on and shepherd us and be in the midst with us. And I know that also makes us unpopular. Um, and yet we continue to wrestle with that rightly, not just queer ordination, Ordination of women, even frankly, ordination of men in 2023. What's ordination of men sometimes? Um, and it gives me hope that we're at least willing to wrestle with it, that we're willing to sit in that stuff together and take the moment and, and find and acknowledge God in all of God's fullness. That, that, uh, that John 10 fullness, abundance, all of the words that come into that. Um, that stuff excites me. That stuff fires me up. As a lay person who is cis please, please don't misunderstand me. I don't, I don't but I, so, no, I, I need to probably clarify this. I don't mean to speak on behalf of queer people in ministry or queer people within a church. I value you, I see you. Um, your experience is not my experience. And we, as the people of God, are made better because you're a part of us. It's not a separate thing. It is us together. Linked arms, sharing in the glory of God. Thank you for persevering with people like me. Thank you. Friends, there are heaps of questions and I'm going to apologise now. We're not going to get through all of them. Thank you for those that have submitted. Um, I do have a couple more questions, if that's all right, friends, to hit you up. This is a great one from Phil Island. Firstly, thank you for your talks. On day one, I thought you were laying the groundwork for a critique of identity politics, for lack of a better term. But then the theme wasn't really explored. What are your views on and how we engage with this complex topic? So, as you know, in what I do uh, as a theologian, uh, I look at cultural trends and look at where we can actually bring affirmation and critique. Um, I can safely say that uh, uh, some of the prestigious openings for me was because of the acceptance of identity politics in the US. Um, 
I was given full scholarship rights to, to great universities, a lot of what happened within that. So there's a whole way in which I have actually um, uh, benefited from the culture of identity politics that we're working with. But as a Christian, I really struggle with this in terms of what it means. And, and let's take the example of, for example, Christian baptism. So there's something that, that identity politics uh, is, is um, dumped, as you would say, in the river of Jordan. And I keep wrestling with what this means. So as I think about Jesus' own baptism, what happens is he comes with very specific identities. He's Jewish, he's male, he's a, a rabbi, he has a certain way of looking at it. He goes into the river and once he comes out, he actually becomes unobliged to anything that in fact he took before he actually went into the plunge. Right? So suddenly his disciples come and ask of, of, of um, you know, they say your mother and your brothers are waiting for you. Um, and he says, who is my mother and my brothers? Except those in fact, who are part of the kingdom of God. Um, you'll see there he's driven off into the de desert and from then on, the only thing that he's obliged to is the reign of God and what this means for him. So, I've always struggled with how do we as Christians deal with affirming who we are and giving everything else up for something much larger. Uh, to put it in, in, in terms that in fact are quite colloquial, um, we all actually have this conception that blood is thicker than water. After baptism, water becomes thicker than blood. So I struggle with this myself. Um, I struggle with how much I claim the identity politics of being an Indian uh, in a diaspora and how increasingly now I'm finding that that becomes an obstacle for me to be what I should be for anybody based on who I can be with them. So that's the struggle I have with identity politics. I also feel that one of the things I'm getting away from is the very Western perception that somehow there is an essential I that is my identity. Um, and we use the word, for example, individual, right? What is individual? It's individable. Somehow there's something, that there's a sati in me that I've got to preserve and show everybody, this is the real me. I suddenly have realized that actually my I lies before me. It's in becoming. There's this wonderful sense of freedom actually that I have. I don't need to defend anything. I don't know what I will be in a year or two. But I do know that I am an agent who's following Jesus. It goes back to what John said. What I'm learning is the script of my life is lived out basically by come, a wonderful invitation to be embraced, take up your cross, and a cross has been different at every stage in my life. What was a cross that I made into a gold ornament as a cross? Suddenly there was another cross, which is much more rugged I had to deal with. Come, take up your cross, follow. And any form of my proclamation of the gospel has been done through the experience of come, take up my cross and fall. So that every offer of the gospel is authentic to my own journey. So I, 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 I urge all of you to actually bring both a critique to what culture offers as a wonderfully complete script, including identity. I can go on and on about stories in which I've pleaded with people who are either thought of themselves as black or 
gay or lesbian. And all that they work with me is from that identity. And I feel it and I say, can you think of me as your future parishioner? Because you have a gospel that is so rich and you've allowed your identity politics actually to not reach out to me in a way that in fact you have been gifted the gospel for the life of the whole world. So I, I'm struggling with that. It, it's still something that I'm working with. Um, and I urge you to think through everything that has been solidified because culture has a way of making golden nuggets of everything and making you feel as though you actually have much value in whatever you have as a golden nugget. Always weigh that against the pearl of great price. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and the, the gift of the wisdom to, to paraphrase John's story that I think he said to be able to give away those moments, to find the wealth in the surety of being able to give yourself freely. We do need to, to continue to wrestle with that because there's post, post-baptism, you know, we, we share a, a common identity, but we, we choose to express that in very culturally specific forms. And if you've grown up in Australia, then, you know, you would have heard um, and probably talked from the front is to say, this is how we, um, we have no race here, we have nothing here, we're just all one in, in Christ. And, uh, but that form of worship was a very culturally, specifically predetermined, predefined way of having church, which is that Sunday morning with um, that kind of worship. As we walked in, did anyone hear Majesty pumping this morning? Smashing it. And, and, and then the other one, what was the other one that I was singing? Um, Lord, Lord, I lift your name on high. I felt like I walked into the 80s. <laughs> you know? and, Both uh, of them bangers, John. They were both bangers, yes. Uh, Louse with shoulder pads still gets my heart racing. Um, so it is. That's more about me <laughs> and what I do at night time. Um, it's no judgment, brother. None. Um, so you know, it was a very westernised cultural form. So we were told, put away. You know, there's nothing that your culture can bring to this space to enhance this worship or to have a dialogue. And that's where I feel. The, the positives uh, and the negatives need to always be weighed. Uh, one of the um, things that saddens me about the affirmative action going is there was an ability for a collective response to a collective sin. Mm. Uh, and when we lose that ability, like right now in Germany, because of the Ukrainian war, they're boycotting um, electricity or something along those lines. I think, when do we have a nationwide response? like that. That's something that's very powerful. When we become individuals, we get um, the sentence can easily flow from anyone's lips, even in today's day, to say, ah, I didn't do that to the Aboriginal people, right? And we've lost our ability to collectively mourn and weep and repent. And so that's something that that saddens me alongside that. I have not read the pedagogy of the oppressed. I have tried. It is way too highbrow for me. But I believe the thesis basically is if the oppressed groups, if they rise up, if they don't do something carefully, they will just repeat the cycle. And so when we have risen up with our identity and we use it as a weapon, uh, we are going to create a war. And that war will just go round and round and round. Whereas when I use it as a marker of identity and as a way I can understand you and you can understand me and we can work out culturally agreed ways to be able to communicate, that is where the power in it lies. It does not lie. It does not lie when we use it when we weaponize our identities. Um, <coughs> and the rearguard response that it takes, and, and the media and the, the, the Murdoch kind of media particularly, uh, that will pick up on any little comment and then uh, use it to further, uh, to ferment 
the conditions in which a, a Jordan Peterson can um, thrive is, and, and then the other side of the cultural commentary is basically bemoaning that state rather than, and I always will say, that was a very inelegant sense, my apologies, you say, we are, there's one side that's very comfortable to talk about the problems of this world, but then the ones like Jordan Peterson, they're talking to the people of this world, and is it any wonder that there, there's this regard saying, do you feel misunderstood and mar marginalised? I mean, you have this weird subsection of utter privilege and class claiming marginalisation now, and as, um, as Aussies, we do that best. Um, is, it's creating a reaction and a response that is becoming more and more polarising in our society. Uh, how do we as communities of faith create different conversations? How do we... Uh, have healthy dialogue with congregations that don't share our inclusive and embracing theologies as well is important. If our desire is to kick them out and to push them away and to minimise them, then how? What alternative are we presenting to this world? And, and that's a, that's another part of the discipleship of the cross. Yeah. Thank you, John uh, and Sadi. Janet, to, to build on this thing. The great foundation that Sadi and John have offered. A question from Anonymous again, they've been very busy. Um, they're asking, can you please put a voice to how we can navigate our privilege and class through our discipleship? How do we use our faith as a tool to address our privileges? I was going to ask Sadi that. Well, <laughs> off you go. So. <laughs> First, to actually uh, assure everybody that we didn't plant the questions and put anonymous. <laughs> it's, a, it's truly anonymous, and it's not us. Um, so again, I can I can speak from the perspective of a privileged, right? I think. On the, on the road of discipleship, the only way in which I can find wholeness is to attach myself to all those that are disprivileged. There's no other road for me to find wholeness. If it is basically the kinship and the kingdom of God that I should be part of in terms of the dream of God. And so, like the amazing work that John and his community do, it is seeking proximity with those, in fact, that have been pushed from neighborhoods because neighborhoods want to be safe, you know, a, a, a privileged. And so it's really seeking proximity with those that, in fact, do not have privilege. I think that's a very important. And again, if you look at the life of Jesus, we know that that's the path of discipleship. So I, I, I think for all of us to keep this in mind, it's, 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 it involves basically intimate relationships. It involves basically accounting for the fact that community for us ought to mean those who have been pushed out of the community. And I think that's really the first step that all of us should work with. Um, I, you know, as, as an experiment for my students over the last 20 years, I've always asked them to build in, if they have a day of retreat, to build in a question as to all those that in fact have been at your dinner table through the whole year and find out who was not. I said that will be a social audit of whether in fact you have walked the discipleship in a privileged country, sitting and getting a degree from a privileged institution. So I think we've got to work into our own lives forms in which we can basically 
knit our lives together with others that in fact are not free, do not have the privilege. And this should be part of discipleship of all churches. We should ask ourselves, we should make a social order to our churches. Who constitutes church for us? Is this the community of Jesus? We should also, just like we have, you know, when you make your, as ministers, you make your house visits, you ask yourself, how many strangers have you encountered? How many hungry have you encountered? How many naked have you encountered? These are questions that we all need to actually set up a way of looking at what discipleship is for us, particularly those of us who live in Australia, the US, and what we could say is privileged society who also are part of the you will say middle class, but according to the world, the super rich and right up there, upper class. class. Thank you. Yes, I was thinking that I've never been uh, so financially secure in my life. I've never had more professional power than I have now in my life. And I wrestled with the suspicion that maybe the gospel isn't for me in the sense that I have to re-find, relocate myself. And, you know, I think that's what Paul means about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, yes, I'm suspicious about what that means for me at this stage of my life. Thank you. That's so beautifully honest and powerful. You know, on Friday night you were talking about how the kingdom is between between us and there is, I don't want to relativise it all, but there's an important aspect where we kind of should line everything up, like, you know, cis, het, ordained, male. These are these are subsections of privilege that, that we have. And uh, to be actively seeking relationship outside of that and or to be open to relationship outside of that, knowing that we are the ones who need to enter in humility into those relationships. Even studying here, you know, you pick up all the other um, uh, commentaries, the women's commentary, the the queer commentary, um, the the African-Americans, the womanist theologies that can help us enhance uh, our perspectives because most of our faith perspectives have been given to us by white American academic males over the last few decades. So how do we break out of of those models, that's really important as well to be able to integrate all of that into to who we um, uh, who who is between us and how our kingdom living and being a part of God's dream will be only enhanced through that. One of the things not to do is to deny um, who you are. <laughs> uh, I grew up spending a lot of energy pretending I wasn't in this skin bag. And it was futile. I see a lot of people who go on the discipleship journey who are, quite frankly, white, and they go on this big journey to try and prove how not white they are. And that's not helpful because you cannot escape it like I cannot escape me. How do we hold that in humility and tension? And also that theology of brokenness we spoke about earlier is how not to relativise it but also realise that we have other parts of our existence that are pushed to the edges or marginalised as well and, and, and begin to do theology from, from that place as well. Um, these are important things. So not only between, but also within. Thank you. Thank you, friends. I have to admit, I, I could extend this conversation with you for a long time, far longer than we have room for today. So I'll have to set up separate coffee meetings with each of you individually so that that can happen. Um, thank you. Would you all please thank our excellent guests, John Owen, Janet Staines, Sadi Park. And keep it going to thank those that gave questions uh, and offered them in. Thank you so much for participating in this very excellent, very fun podcast at SOD as a part of the question and response time here. Friends, a little bit of business on the way out. If you would like to stay in touch with Pulse, there are heaps of different ways that you can do that. You can email us using the world's longest email address, contact-pulse at nswact.uca.org.au. <laughs> Just makes me tired reading it out. Um, we are also at 
UCA Pulse on Instagram, on Facebook, on TikTok, uh, and on Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, we are also on the web, pulse.uca.org.au. Uh, in fact, we're probably standing right beside you as you listen to this now. Thank you so much for participating in this uh, excellent live event, the Pulsecast, the number one youth ministry podcast for the United Church in Australia. Thank you all for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you too, Mark. Together, man.